about that Masters, huh? I mean, no sporting event is going to top the Masters. Yesterday was an incredible day for television because of the Masters and the NBA playoffs and Major League Baseball. It's just a great time to be a sports fan right now. I love April. This college basketball season has mercifully ended with a championship game that did not include the Duke Blue Devils. I mean, the ultimate anticlimactic ending to a season of bad amateur basketball, which is what we're treated to every year with college basketball. I don't understand the fascination with college basketball, and I don't understand the fascination with Game of Thrones. I used to enjoy Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones was a great show. Super interesting plot lines and plot twists and character development, engaging dialogue. I felt invested in these characters. And then a funny thing happened. After season five, the story got stale. The character development ended and the plot became predictable. So I stopped watching. I said, this show is no longer interesting. Then I go, oh no, but dragons, 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 Podfather, dragons, dragons, look, dragons. In 2019, the draw is CGI dragons on television? If I want to be entertained by CGI, I'll watch a movie. I'll watch Star Wars. I'll watch any action movie with The Rock. Not a television program. Watch The Rock take on Godzilla. I'd rather watch that than some predictable fantasy story with CGI. George R.R. Martin is a genius, but George R.R. Martin stopped writing Game of Thrones-related books, and there's a clear delineation in the show, in the show's timeline, when the books ended and Hollywood took over. Because once the George R.R. R. Martin book's plotline ended, the Michael Bays of Hollywood took over. And then they rubbed it in our face with these post-show interviews where the writers explained their very basic decisions to engineer my boredom. Like, they're hacks. Hollywood hacks have been driving this show for multiple seasons. I feel like I'm the only one that sees this because there are two sets of people on social media, those that have proudly never watched Game of Thrones and those that have proudly continued to watch Game of Thrones from season one, I feel like this very small minority of those that appreciate George R.R. R. Martin's work and hate seeing this very lame recreation, this copy of a copy of a copy of George R.R. R. Martin's vision on the big screen. Want nothing to do with it. Done. And I walk away from most shows. I can count on a single hand the number of shows I've stuck with through their final season. I see the final season of precious few shows because Hollywood is incentivized to push shows past their point of being interesting. Pushing the creators to microwave new seasons after their creativity has been drained. You see this over and over and over and over again. So I ultimately walk away well before a show's last season. I saw the last season of The Wire. I saw the last season of The Sopranos, Seinfeld, and Breaking Bad. I believe Ozark is on the right trajectory. I can see myself seeing Ozark through to its conclusion. I'm still enraptured by the show Billions. I'll never miss an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. 
That's about it. These shows that could hold my attention for their lifetimes are few and far between. They come along every five years. Why? Because I have standards, very high standards. I have precious few hours in a week that I can devote to television. And when I sit down to watch, it better be excellent or I am hitting the stop button. And Game of Drones has been stopped. But don't let me stop you from going to social media and joining in with the cool kids celebrating what has become a bloated contrivance at HBO. The other problem with Game of Thrones is it's a significant percentage of HBO's budget. With what HBO is paying to produce Game of Thrones, they could launch five new shows, put five new projects in development for the cost of one lame season of Game of Drones. So that's my biggest objection to the show. It crowds out better, more creative art because it has been years since anything under this Game of Thrones umbrella has been produced that could be considered art. But what Tiger Woods did on Sunday was absolutely art. And what juiced up the experience for me, juiced. You wonder how Tiger Woods was able to rebuild his body to get back out there in his 40s and win a major tournament. You wonder. It's all about getting up at 3 a.m. and stretching. Yeah, that's, that's all that's necessary. I ramped up the suspense by setting up an account on Monkey Knife Fight. If you want stakes in the action on Sunday, whether it be the Masters or the NBA, you go to Monkey Knife Fight. And some of you might be thinking, well, what the hell's Monkey Knife Fight? Monkey Knife Fight is the closest thing to gambling that we have in this business, in the fantasy football space. But it's not classified as gambling, so you don't need to live in New Jersey to do a prop wager. Monkey Knife Fight has baskets of props that you can select. And so, for example, tonight, Warriors Clippers, you can go Kevin Durant over under 25.5 points and Danilo Gallinari over under 19.5 points. And what I will do is take the over on Gallinari and the under on Durant. Why? Opportunity share. It's a fantasy football formula. A lot of mouths to feed, right? The mouths to feed cliche in Golden State. Not so in Los Angeles. Gallinari had 15 points while playing awful basketball in game one. And in order for this team to be competitive at all, they have to score 120 points. They know they have to go and score. How do you score if you're the Clippers? You give the ball to Danilo Gallinari. He'll get to 20 points tonight. Kevin Durant, I don't know. Now DeMarcus Cousins needs touches in addition to Clay and Curry. You just don't know how many touches Kevin Durant will get on a given night in the context of that Warriors offense. So I'm going under. He played well in game one, scored 23 points. It's a balanced offense. That's what happens. I love Monkey Knife Fight. And the best part is Monkey Knife Fight is sponsoring playerprofiler.com for the remainder of the season. This is the biggest bet any fantasy platform has ever placed on playerprofiler.com. They believe in us. Monkey Knife Fight is funding this entire enterprise, the website, this show, the development of our Dynasty Dominator app in the App Store for iPhones and in the Google Play Store for Android devices. All these Roto Underworld toys you like to play with, they all cost tens of thousands of dollars to produce. And we need partners like Monkey Knife Fight to make it a reality. So this will not be the first time you hear me talk about Monkey Knife Fight on this show. So you might as well just get it over with, go there, and use the promo code UNDERWORLD. That gives you a 100% deposit bonus on up to $50 plus 
a $2 free roll when you sign up. You get a free contest plus a very generous deposit bonus that I help negotiate for you. So this is the ultimate win-win that we've been able to provide to our listeners. We are grateful to Monkey Knife Fight. And if you enjoy this show, please support us by going to Monkey Knife Fight, use that promo code UNDERWORLD, and get juiced for the NBA playoffs. Now, I give you part two of our conversation with Rich Rebar, focused exclusively on 2019 NFL draft prospects. Enjoy. Part two of my show with Rich Rebar. We just ran out of time. We ran out of tape on the recorder machine. Part two, NFL draft prospects. Rich Rebar is from Ohio. What do you make of Dwayne Haskins? He's slipping down big boards, Rich. He's slipping! Yeah, I don't know how much that we can believe. It's one of the, we're in those, you know, believe everything, believe nothing stages of the month. Um, I can say, you know, Haskins, you know, obviously he doesn't have that, that appeal. There's a reason he's QB2, at least, and maybe even lower. Um, he doesn't have that rushing appeal. You know, no, but, uh, Steve, don't tell Stephen A that he doesn't have the rushing appeal, but he, he doesn't have that mobility factor, which hurts him. You know, I, I like that. You know, that, I mean, Ky, Kyler is just such a big separator because of the rushing, and he's got the yeah. good passing background as well. I will say that Haskins does show up in my QB model well. Um, I don't really scout QBs from a subjective stance. I just don't care because outside it's so hard. Well, it's hard, and in outside of superflex leagues, from my position, it's a waste of time. Like it just, uh, it, there's not a big edge to be gained for it. I will say this though: that my QB model is actually like pretty good. Like the toot its own horn, it had Mahomes by and far as the, the QB one in QB in 2017. It actually had Dak Prescott as the QB three in in 2016. Woo! And, and Dak Prescott was drafted after Paxton Lynch, Cody Kessler, Connor Cook, Christian Hatper, Hackenberg, and Jacoby Brissett. Connor Cook and Christian Hackenberg. Oh. It does have some big misses. I mean, so far, Mariota was a big miss for the model. Uh, and Geno Smith was as well. Oh, Mariota's been a big miss for everybody, Rich. Come on. Yeah, I mean, but... It, it, but, you know, so far, I do kind of blindly have some faith in my model. And Haskins shows well, but, like, I don't really... I'm not really scouting Dwayne Haskins and have like a like a strong Dwayne Haskins subjective take. I just know that he does show as a a round one quarterback in my model and shows that uh, he he deserves to be picked there. What about Will Greer? Is Will Greer a round one QB in your model? He he scores as QB three in my model. The problem with Will Greer is that he's old as shit. He, he's he's turning 20 he turned 24 just last week i know he's the carson wentz of this class yeah so if he ends up in a spot where he's more of a longer play like wait on situation um that could be problematic for him you know just not having the age benefactor um and just some other guys i mean something named gardner Minshew is objectively fourth in the model i don't even know like who he is what team he's on uh, and then, you know, followed by Brett Rippin and then Daniel Jones, the dude people like he's 11th in the, in the model. He's not good. He's not good at all, but your top three, Murray Haskins Greer. That's our top three. What about running backs? Who's your favorite running back prospect? Not named miles Sanders. Damn it. It was miles Sanders, man. Anyone else at all that you like? So first of all, I want to preface this, that this class sucks. Awful. <laughs> objectively awful nothing has been more true than this running back class being objectively awful this it really reminds me of the 2014 running back class like it really gives me a lot of like vibes of that class. the jeremy hill season yeah the bishop sankey rb1 like we got to squint to see it with a lot of these guys 
Um, I will say a couple guys under that I like that I think I think Rykel Armstead is a guy that is undervalued. Just checks a lot of objective boxes. Not a really elite in anything, but a lot of pros in, every, in all the boxes. Yeah, great size, adjusted athleticism, played at Temple. Not a strong receiver. No, but he was sixth in this class in terms of rushing output compared to team rushing opportunity at plus 11.5%. That was pretty good. Yeah. I kind of think, too, uh, you know, being around here, uh, you know, subjectively probably may have seeped in. I'm not an Ohio State fan, but. Mike Weber. They're t- yeah, Mike Weber is kind of the poor man. Mike Weber! Mike Weber's good, buddy. He's, he's kind of the poor man's Josh Jacobs in terms of draft capital in this class because he was a guy that shared. Yeah. He shared time with an objectively another good running back in J.K. Dobbins. And Mike Weber was a highly touted high school recruit who was thought to be a lock for early round draft capital in 2019. And then the floor fell out from under him. Well, mm-hmm. been the same career path for Josh Jacobs, except that Mike Weber was productive at one point in his career. Josh Jacobs was not. Mike Weber showed upper percentile athleticism. Josh Jacobs did not. We have Mike Weber one slot ahead of Josh Jacobs on our rookie running back rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings, because they're objective. Yeah, I mean, 54 career receptions. That's eighth in this class. You know me, I'm a BMI whore. So I'm looking at that 30.3 BMI of Mike Weber. He looks like an NFL running back, has the profile of an NFL running back, and he is a better pass catcher than people believe. He also forced a missed tackle on 20.9% of his runs. That was a higher rate than the guy we like in Miles Sanders. I just think that, uh, you know, inherently we know guys that, uh, were in timeshares in college, projected to be in timeshares in the NFL. But I think where Weber's draft cost is going to be, I think I'm going to be interested to monitor where he goes uh, because he's one of those archetypes like we talked about to invest in because if the if he he's the guy that will jump over one of those satellite backs, if even if he's the RB3 on a roster. That's right. If that incumbent goes down, he'll jump that just pass-catching guy because he can catch the ball and he's big and he's fast and he, you know, has has pedigree, you know, in terms of what he was as a player that was recruited to Ohio State. The easiest way to sniff test running back rankings is see if any of these 200-pound running backs, other than Daryl Henderson, who has proven that he can be a workhorse and be the most efficient running back in college football history, other than that guy. If you see Justice Hill, Bryce Love, Travion Williams, Travis Homer ranked above Mike Weber, then that ranking service is focusing on the wrong details. Yes. And I like some of those players. What about wide receivers? Who do you believe is the wide receiver one in this class? So I'm going to lead in and finally drop the big slot take that I alluded to on the previous podcast. So big slot is where I think that NFL teams are really gaining an edge in the the current construct of how NFL offenses are run. And as they shift to more of a space, multiple wide receiver set game, you know, whether that be from Larry Fitzgerald's late career rejuvenation to Juju's early assault on once, once of a career production that we've seen so far to the saints expanding Michael Thomas using them in last year and enhancing his game. Look at Michael Thomas. He was ninth in the NFL in slot receiving yards last year, he was 43rd in slot routes run. Just just getting him in for 30% of his slot routes exponentially made him a better NFL player. And then you also look at last year, we saw career slot highs in production from DeAndre Hopkins, from A.J. Green, from Devontae Adams, because it is smart. For one, not many NFL corners even shadow at all, but you get your best player matched up on a, a, a an inferior player. So that helps. Every time. You get your player 
your your best offensive wide receiver now. You get him on free releases consistently. You cannot jam the slot receiver. He lines up off the ball. Slot corners um, also are inherently, we talked about inferior, they're small and slow. You look at the top 10 cornerbacks in terms of slot snaps played last year. It's Logan Ryan. That's the ceiling. <laughs> the average of those players was five foot ten and 194 pounds. They're going against guys like Michael Thomas, DeAndre Hopkins, Devontae Adams. They aren't winning. Juju Smith-Schuster, they aren't winning. And then lastly, you also rarely get true overlap in, in man-to-man co- uh, coverage, you know, against those corners. You know, while in the slot, you know, you're finding more zone opportunities versus linebackers versus safeties. Um, I believe this is something that will continue to grow in the NFL, and I believe this class is littered littered with dudes that can just excel where in previous drafts they would have got knocked for being just players that would play as big slot guys. I think the big slot is a true exponentially growing position and one that can be exploited in real NFL and fantasy purposes, which leads me to do the dance party with Nikhil Harry, who's starting to get dunked on. Nikhil. I actually don't believe Nikhil Harry will be the first wide receiver taken. He may not even be the second wide receiver taken. No, he won't be. I think he'll be the third or fourth because Hakeem Butler and DK Metcalf are rising. But he is the best blend of objective floor paired with room for ceiling and what he does on an NFL football field. He's big. He's physical. He wins 50-50 balls. He produced as a freshman through junior season after being a top 10 recruit. He plays inside and out. Um, our friend Travis May uh, back recorded this in January that he was doing scouting on all of these receivers, and he's got some great tidbits on his timeline. Listen to this. Nikhil Harry had a two-game stretch where he ran a route on nine different receptions, on, on, on nine different catches. He ran nine different routes continuously. It had a two-game stretch, um, and that was over. And that was over five different snap alignments. He lined up in five different places. That's like what other receiver in this class has that kind of repertoire? Not many in this class. No other wide receiver has that route inventory. None. That's why Nikhil Harry is the 101. Yeah, and so um, you combine it with age-adjusted production, you know, recruitment pedigree, measured athleticism. It's easy. Then you look at some of the knocks on him. I mean, Arizona State had a head coach change last year. Our boy Herm Edwards was the head coach. Uh, their new OC. He was? Yeah, their new OC was Rob Likens who was the wide receiver coordinator the year prior. So what he did, because the quarterback that Arizona State had, Manny Wilkins, is is objectively terrible, is they changed things up, and the way they ran their offense is they funneled their offense through Nikhil Harry, similarly to how Pitt had to change their offense through Tyler Boyd as Tyler Boyd progressed through his collegiate career. Ah. So Harry's usage completely flipped in 2018 than it was from 2017. Last year he ran 32% of his targets were from the slot. The year prior in 2017, he had just 11 slot targets. Um, where he, but you look at last year, he was extremely effective. He was he was 10th in the nation in yards uh, per route run from the slot uh, last year. Uh, then you but then you want to say, oh, that's a knock that he has to play a big slot. Harry's a dot was 10.1 yards. A comparable player, AJ Brown, was 10.7. And Brown's yak rate was also comparable to Nikhil Harry. How come we're not getting the same argument thrown in the face of A.J. Brown? And I love A.J. Brown because he fits that big slot, you know, type of corollary. Exactly. A.J. Brown and Nikhil Harry are the class of this class. Yes. 
Yes. They are the only two wide receivers we have in tier one. They check the boxes that we need to be checked. All the other wide receivers have glaring flaws that you have to rationalize. Harry and Brown do not. They are plug and play instant contributors at the NFL level as freshmen. In seasonal leagues, I'll only be drafting two wide receivers. It's Harry and it's Brown. Yeah, my wide receiver one and wide receiver two as well. What Harry does, you know, like I said, he wins 50-50 balls and he wins vertically more than people believe. There's actual tangible proof, factual proof, that it happens more than the scouts let you believe. So Harry had 329 career targets in college. An example of talent, by the way, the dude had 330 targets in three years. Only 51 of those came on screens. That's, that's a lot, 15.5%. But what about the other 85% of his targets? Well, listen to this. On 115 career targets that came on posts, corners, and goes, he averaged 16.6 yards per catchable target. He's good. He's good at winning on those routes. It happened. Just because you're picking out a sample of of, of routes where he didn't win doesn't mean he can't. He, he has a plenty of the targets you ignored where he does win on those routes. The game where Harry is picked apart the most, his game versus Oregon this year, he caught seven balls for 105 yards. Cool. Tear that down. Yeah, I mean, he's really good, like I said. So listen to this, too. Nikhil Harry. He's a no-doubter, man. He's one of the highest floor wide receiver prospects in the history of the NFL draft process. So in terms of explosive plays, Nikhil Harry generated a higher rate of 20 plus yard receptions than Marquise Brown. The dude that everyone is expecting to be like a pure NFL flanker. (laughs) What? Really? Yes, that is a fact. I mean, so historical prospects also. Facts only from Rich Rebar. These are tangible facts that you could get that, that are contrary to what the subjective analysis is saying is a shortcoming. Data, Trump's narrative in the most extreme way. I mean, his so historical prospects that broke out before the 21st birthday have gone on to record a wide receiver two or better season, at least in their first three NFL years, 35% of the time that rises when a player selected with a round two pick or higher. So it's kind of like, why are we even doing this right now? Has it just been because it's four months and this is like, we ended on just hating ourselves. I don't understand. It's Supreme scout fallacy tears down these types all the time. When objectively, the production at a young age, athletic profile, uh, are all objective hits, and they build up these non-existing elements all the time that, you know, kind of, you know, don't bear out in the proof of production and or athleticism in a lot of these things. Um, Now, I watch players, and I read content from a number of respected individuals in this field on what they see. I care about what they see. But do you want to know how much I really stock that's related to film? Try to make it 0.0%, including from myself. The reason... Nobody knows tangible shit about film evaluation in relation to future production and what it means. Everyone is bad at it. Sure, there are people worse at it than others, which can create an edge. Like you like you think teams are better at drafting than other teams, but no, there's just teams worse at it than other teams. But no one is objectively good at scouting players under the light it is and creating a hit rate that suggests they are truly good at scouting players. I mean, there's just too much of inflection of inflection of tearing down what players do well and focusing on what players do wrong. When when you when teams excel at getting the most out of what players do well, that's you know you, you're a team is not going to draft. And you know if he goes to a spot, Nikhil here or any player you like, you you look at what he does well. You should be looking at what they maximize. How a team's going to maximize what he does well instead of what he does wrong. I mean. 
I'm not saying there aren't brilliant people behind the curtain that know X's and O's and what it takes from an execution level to make a play successful in the NFL, but there's just far too, more var- too much variance from football on any level of football from play to play and the minutia to comb through and creating an accurate gauge of projecting future success based on that. The end game of career outcomes is subject to just too many unknown variables to get caught up in these subjective failure outcomes. Football is played within the margins, in the gray space, not the black and white. You should be focusing on things like player age, performance, pedigree, athleticism, and what a player actually does well, what he does well on the football field instead of what you see him doing wrong. I mean, it's, that's not a, a thing me in the corner saying Harry's a slam dunk uh, because of all the negatives. Um, but those are the things you should be doing. No, there's just nobody good at it. Um, you know, I'm out of breath, worked up over it. NFL draft analysts are very fickle. They will focus only on what Hakeem Butler does well while tearing down Paris Campbell, ignoring his positive traits and only focusing on the limited route inventory that they perceive. Do you know for a fact that Paris Campbell is a bad route runner? No, nobody knows that. Yeah. But the assumption is that Hakeem Butler will develop into a great route runner. Why? Because he has the greatest wingspan in the history of the position. And does wingspan translate to success in the NFL? Of course not. It's maddening, Rich. It's maddening. Who you got, Paris Campbell or Hakeem Butler? Uh, you're going to hate me here because I actually am higher on Butler than you. The, or the Bustler, as you call him. Hakeem Bustler. Oh, I put that dichotomy out there because I also know you love Paris Campbell. Yeah, I mean, I actually showed you a initial rookie draft I did. I showed you what I saw you in person of a draft I did in February, and I took Hakeem Butler at 112 and Paris Campbell at 212. Good luck getting those guys at those costs uh, in your rookie drafts. Um, but there were just two guys. I Listen, I'm a sucker for the flame like on guys like Butler. Like I mean, He is my archetype of where... I will I will miss on and will will willingly miss on. Am I going to take him one on one? I miss my wide receiver five right now. Well, that's fair. That's where he should be. The interesting thing is we we've been talking about big slots, right? Big slots, and to me, Butler actually seems to be a better option to play inside and run up the seam immediately in the NFL at a lineup on the perimeter. And I'm not going to do that with just a subjective take. I'm going to back it up with results. He led the nation, the nation in yards per route run from the slot last year at 5.2. Five of his nine TDs came from the slot and he averaged 24.9 yards per reception from the slot where he can win is you get him. You know, the issue though, NFL coordinators are not going to put him in the slot. And and that's the rub that we talked about. (laughs) They're not going to do it. They will look at his success at the college level and practice cognitive dissonance, and they will park him outside, and he will be an elite decoy in the NFL. And that's a problem because I talked about the, the big slot, and like that's where he won in college. Where he won and what he did well is there in that role, and I would love to see him use like that role. And if I'm an NFL team, you, you, should, you should be wanting to do that. And listen, if you're an NFL team subjectively drafting Hakeem Butler based on things you liked on film and you don't play him on the things that he did well on film, which was running up the seam and burning dudes in the slot that were smaller than him, you're an idiot. You're, you, did, you, did, you just prove how much of a dumb like – like how worthless this entire process is on scouting and all the money invested and time invested into all this shit. It's like, if you don't use Hakeem Butler in that role – you didn't, you didn't look at anything. You didn't, you didn't see anything. You know who they will put in the slot, though, right away? Plug and play, Paris Campbell. You would agree with this. Paris Campbell is going to play a hell of a lot more snaps in his rookie season than Hakeem Butler will. 
I think it's a good shot at it. I definitely wouldn't like bet strongly against it. Um, it was just for me, Paris Campbell, like for the whole process was such, he was such an easy game. Like if you, if you had drafts prior to the combine, it, like, cause it was so easy to know that he was going to destroy the combine and the things he was going to do well, <laughs> were going to be counted by the NFL. It was so damn easy. It was all there in front. He was one of the easiest guys to mark. Like the NFL is going to rise. He's going to be one of the highest risers. But what if I told you, Rich, what if I told you that actually his teammate is rising faster and higher than him? ESPN analysts getting their information from NFL scouts believe that Terry McLaurin has a better chance to get drafted in the first round than Paris Campbell. How is that possible? The NFL, we, we talk, the NFL, they're bad at this. Listen, it's crazy. That's crazy. Anytime you have a chance in the first round to grab an old receiver that was unproductive, uh, who's who also happens his best NFL position is punt gunner. If you can draft Matthew Slater in the first round, you have to do it. You have to get Matthew Slater <laughs> on your roster in the first round. <laughs> and you don't agree that Hakeem Butler is the next AJ Green, right? You don't agree with that. No, he doesn't pop on. What was he on player profiler? Who was his closest? Well, he doesn't compare to A.J. Green because he's a lot bigger than A.J. Green. His best comparable is Brandon Marshall, but that is not a close comparable because there are very few wide receivers that look like Hakeem Butler. Yeah. It's easy to comp Marlon Mack and Melvin Gordon. There's a lot of running backs with that stature and athletic profile. There's not a lot of wide receivers that look like Hakeem Butler. That's the issue with comps. You want to throw out the Brandon Marshall comp, well, that's okay. There just aren't a lot of comps. Because there are very few wide receivers that have ever come into the league that look like Hakeem Butler and Brandon Marshall. There is one in this class, though, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. He and Hakeem Butler have two of the most similar profiles we've ever seen. A few years ago, Brashad Perriman's best comparable was Kevin White, and Kevin White's best comparable was Brashad Perriman, and that was just poetic on a lot of levels. This year, if we could comp rookies to rookies, Jaws would compare to Bustler as close as Bustler compares to Jaws. We had a lot of shark overlap on this podcast. So Jaws, you know, fit, fits in well. <laughs> and like you said, the problem with Hakeem Butler is just finding guys that big. The close, the four closest objective guys I had were Mitch Matthews from BYU, uh, USC Mike Williams, uh, Marcus Colston, and Mike Evans were the closest that hit. So you get a, a little wide range of outcomes there, too, which is what objective comps. Yeah, Colston was also there, absolutely. The problem with the A.J. Green comp is not just the size difference. Yeah. It's that as a freshman, a true freshman at Georgia, A.J. Green, 56 receptions for 963 yards and eight touchdowns. Hakeem Butler, in his first season at Iowa State, Zero receptions for zero yards and zero touchdowns. Then, in his second season at Georgia, 808 yards. Then, in his third season at Georgia, in only nine games, A.J. Green posted 848 yards and nine touchdowns. Then he came out early after only three years in college. Hakeem Butler's logged four years. A.J. Green was a plug-and-play, no-doubter, at the next level. Hakeem Butler is still a developmental prospect in the NFL. That's the difference. And I honestly, this is completely just guesswork on my end, but I feel like the NFL draft is lower on Butler than the draft community is. And I think that bears out by like a guy like Daniel Jeremiah who's plugged in and, you know, kind of his takes come, in, come from being dialed in. 
uh, has him a lot lower because I also think the NFL cares about shit that doesn't matter and the shit that doesn't matter about Butler's game, the drops and the consistencies. Yes, the sloppy footwork, the drops. That's right. It's funny. Like, I don't like my allies in this Hakeem Bustler debate. Those coming to my defense are waving the flag of drops and footwork, and I don't want to be aligned with those analysts. Yeah, man, it was kind of like the Jarvis Landry thing last year, and people were getting on board, and it was like, no, we've been here forever. No, 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 stop it. I actually see the upside in Butler, and I, I see a lot of it, and I believe in it. Cause like I said, I focus on what things guys do well. But don't you remember when he ran the gauntlet drill at the combine, all the tweets? Look at this dude. Oh, it's so sloppy. It's like, cause it's like, and I feel like NFL teams value that shit. They shouldn't, but they do. Um, so I'm going to be curious to see where he goes. I think he could be one of those players that he's definitely going to be a round two plus guy, but I. I think we'll see. We don't, I don't think he's going to be the wide receiver one, like something he can threat, threaten to be. And he might not even be the wide receiver two or three. I'm real curious to see what it does, see where a team values him. But Arceo Whiteside, getting back to Jaws, yeah, I mean, he's he's my wide receiver three. Love him. I mean, you look at everything he brings to the table. So good. He had over 25% of the team receiving output and 91.7% of the games, trailing only Andy Isabella. Uh, He led all receivers in contested catches through PFF over the past two seasons. He attacks the catch point like a shark, this Jaws. And then the deep ball. He was awesome in the deep ball. People think he's just the goal line guy. Uh, You know, over the past two seasons, he was sixth in fantasy points, uh, first in catch rate on uh, deep targets per Scott Barrett uh, from PFF data. So, I mean, there's a lot to like here in terms of versatility. I believe he's more versatile then again, he's another guy that scouts tear down for things that just don't exist. They say he, he can't win on his own and create separation, but look at look at what I just laid out. Yeah, that's wrong. That's just flat wrong. It's factually incorrect and not supported by the data. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, um, I'm, I'm on board with that him as well. Uh, like I said, I, like I said, I'm just more – I learned from Josh Norris, and I, I do a lot with him from the podcasting. I, I just really care about what players do well, and I focus on what players do well, and I look at that upside and think about how it's going to get used in the NFL. It doesn't always happen. Like I like we talked about, I think a guy like Butler can totally get miscast in the NFL, especially initially. He could turn into like a good boundary receiver, but I think if you want him to win for the draft capital you're going to invest into him, you better be playing him in some big slot, man. Not going to happen. <laughs> It's just not. I mean, we, you know, I'm a realist. It's not going to happen. Where I see the most alignment on a player outside the top four, right, a player off the Mount Rushmore of wide receiver prospects, where I see enthusiasm from the metrics community, I see enthusiasm from the film grinders, a wide receiver that I think the NFL will use properly and can win in all areas of the football field, it's the guy you mentioned earlier, Andy Isabella. If you're an NFL offensive coordinator, you can't wait to get your hands on Andy Isabella because of all of the places where he wins. Yeah, he's a guy, man, it's interesting because I'm like a no man's land with him. And I've talked to JJ because JJ loves him. He's the number five receiver on our rookie rankings. He's going to be good. So he has like a wide range of outcomes for me, which is why I have a tough time nailing him. What pick he goes and what team he goes to. And you mentioned it as well. There's a lot of people from a fantasy sense and draft sense that are high on him. So I'm kind of like in limbo, so I'm never going to be at the proper price point to where I want to draft him. I mean, him being almost 190 pounds was huge for him, though, whereas the difference of like a guy like Greg Dortch uh, being 173 is a big problem. And fast. Greg Dortch, relatively slow for his size. Andy Isabella ran a 4-3-1. So 
He did everything we wanted him to do. He came in bigger and ran faster than anyone expected. He was the best route runner, according to the subjective scouts at the Senior Bowl. It's very difficult to find a weakness, and he fits the profile of that wide receiver that NFL teams know how to use because it's impossible to misuse him. I, I'm curious because I actually don't think he's a pure slot guy, uh, but it's, it's more of a flanker, but I could see him get used as a slot guy because narrative street. What's interesting is the senior bowl, it was more negative than positive on Isabella. A lot of people were down on him because thought that he just tried to do too much. It just goes to show who you follow. According to who I follow, who is at the Senior Bowl, Andy Isabella was very strong. That perfectly illustrates just how subjective this gibberish is. Yeah, I will say for me, just from an objective stance, is he falls into like an archetype size-wise where I think it can go either way. I kind of look at him and how he played from a subjective stance, and you know, he is a bit of a puddle catcher. He likes to let the ball get deep on him. And I look at he's got he's got tiny arms, tiny hands, low catch radius to match his size. Kind of, kind of pairs with how I how I saw him catch the football. Uh, you know, you know, there's a mix of subjectivity and factual, you know, data backed up in there as well. Like I said, uh, and then you just have to think of just a lot of guys from him don't pop. He's like he needs to be Brandon Cooks. No, 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 no. No, John Brown had a thousand yard season. Tyler Lockett popped last year. You look at his comps. He has some of the best set of comps in this class. If you're just looking for wide receivers that ultimately gave you a fantasy-relevant season. Very few receivers have as many as Isabella in their top 10 comps. Yeah, but he's the inverse also of Butler, that he has such a low hit rate of comps that fit that bucket of production and size and speed. Uh, it's, it's the inverse. Yes, you got me. I'm not a hypocrite. You're right. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If I'm going to use that same rhetorical trick against Hakeem Butler, it also has to be applied to Andy Isabella. You got me. But he does he does pop for me uh, from an objective stance, which is it's, it's tough to ignore. I mean, it's tough to be this productive. I mean, really, the only thing working against him is that we've seen like that system and systems like it. You think Eastern uh, Carolina producing Zay Jones and Justin Hardy and the same system producing Tajay Sharp uh, and all his Uber production gives me the willies a little bit uh, how real that production is. Uh, But yeah, objectively, it's hard to discount him. And then if you look at him versus power five opponents, he popped against all of them. He was productive against all those guys. That's right. And you can say that some of it was against junk time against Georgia, but he still had like 12 catches at halftime of that game. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's tough to tear him down. Very few wide receivers have ever had a better day against Georgia in the history of college football. None did. Well, none did. And they faced <laughs> a lot of good wide receivers they shut down, too, and had junk and had garbage time opportunities that didn't pop as well. So, I mean, I just think it's one of those, yeah, I'm going to get out of my own way and not focus on the, the those things and, and look at the positives. You know when I was convinced, Rich? When the timer flashed 4-3-1. I think a lot of people were convinced then. That was it for me. That was it for me. I was like, okay, that's it. We'll see ya. Bye. I think we're going to call this a day. Remember when they got it wrong, though, and everyone went to have a victory dance and him not being fast? It's funny that you say that because I didn't watch the Combine, so I just made that up. And But you're right. Everyone at the Combine with a stopwatch was like, wait a second. That's like two-tenths of a second off. That can't be right. Everyone ran to Twitter to take their anti-Isabella victory lap, and then they'd delete, 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 delete. (laughs) I wasn't on Twitter at that moment, and I wasn't watching the Combine. So that entire illustration of when I was convinced of Andy Isabella's greatness was a complete lie, and you've exposed me. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I will say, like I said, he's a hard player for me because I'm a little bit below the, the, the people that like him and a little bit, and I'm higher than the people that dislike him. Yeah, you got to have him well inside the top 10 if you want to tout him. Yeah, he's not like uh, Justin Christian, small school guy like that. No one's high on these small school guys. Basically, it's Andy Isabella and Ashton Doolin, but if you want to stake out territory on any other small school guy, they're wide open. Tell me what Kelvin Harmon does well. Kelvin Harmon fell outside the top 10. Based on his good but not great age-adjusted production, he's not athletic enough to put in the top 10. Yeah, he's got no, he's got nothing that pops that sells him as a win where he's getting drafted. I would like to like... Oh, he's going to be the most overdrafted wide receiver in this class. And I would like to like him based on where he's probably going to go in projected draft capital and in projected draft capital in terms of fantasy drafts. But he's not going to be anywhere close to that for me. So I'm not going to be able to get him. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I have a, he's the one guy I have a hard time with. But, uh, yeah, as far as our, like, dart bros. Kelvin Harmon's another sniff test wide receiver where if you see someone putting him in their top five, they're focused on the wrong details. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, as far as like the dart throws, I mean, I've kind of like always liked Emmanuel Butler through the process. It stinks that he, I haven't seen his pro, he hasn't, he didn't run right at a pro day yet. No, we haven't seen his 40 yet. That's a big data point. He did everything but do that. Um, he's probably gonna be a lower round pick anyways. But so this dude, this dude played with like some really objectively bad QBs last year, Northern Arizona, the school he plays for. Emmanuel Butler. Yeah, they had four different quarterbacks throw over 30 passes last year. Uh, they were bad. He caught seven of 15 touchdowns, though, that they threw. And he also, against we talk about playing uh, D1 teams when he moved up, he faced Arizona in 2017 and five for 87. And then UTEP, who barely qualifies, but they are they, he had six for 138 and two against them. So, I mean, his profile, he checked out in the other areas that he competed in in the combine. Uh, fine. Uh, just, you, you know, just depends what he's going to run and where he gets drafted. Probably low. Complete long shot. He'll go undrafted in Dynasty rookie drafts. He's the perfect free agent ad in Dynasty. This was a phenomenal NFL draft bonus show. Thank you to Rich Rebar for taking the extra time in the underworld with us. And... Today, we can say officially that Rich Rebar is an NFL draft expert. <laughs> that, is, that is not true. He needs to be anointed. He's on one knee. We'd knight him NFL draft expert. Yes. No way. You want to be just the fantasy guy at Roto World, but that's not true. You're much more than that. You are good at this. I don't want any part of that life or be associated with that life. I know you don't want to be. <laughs> we are conscripting you into it. I don't want any part of that life. You're literally being drafted into this army. <laughs> I'm sorry we ran long. I knew we were going to, but uh, I, you know, I haven't podcasted a lot this offseason. I had a lot to say. No one's going to get my rookie takes because I'm probably not going to do another podcast before the draft because I've been kind of laying low and you got on me. Yeah, you got it out. You just have to get these takes out, man. They build up. Even getting at me for not being enough I'm around social media, and I, you know, I'll, I'm coming back. It's just I need to recharge, man. My basement flooded. I've been taking care of that. Oh no, it's just life. I wanted to get these takes out there. I love giving takes with you. No, no, hey, wait. I need one more. 
I got to get you out of here on the most difficult dichotomy of them all. Oh, get me. TJ Hawkinson or Noah Fant? Both. I go Hawkinson because he supplanted Fant. And if you have the George Kittle level athleticism and then you get supplanted by a tight end with good but not great athleticism, what does that say about you vis-a-vis your teammate? They were crowding out targets and opportunity from each other. It was the ultimate receiver cannibalization. And Hawkinson, TJ Hawk, as I like to call him, he won that contest. Objectively, yes. I mean, it was a fight. It was a fight to the death in the ring, and Hawkinson walked out alive with the targets. I would rank him higher and have him higher. I want both. I think both are fine, though. I want both. Nobody knows tangible shit about film evaluation in relation to future production and what it means. Everyone is bad at it. That was amazing. Facts only from Rich Rebar.